Hello, I'm Jason Kelly, and this is the Practicing History Podcast. Practicing History is a podcast about the way we construct our pasts, not just how professionals do it, but how all of us, every day, tell stories, speak, think, and reflect historically. Through doing this, we're all historians. Today, we return from an extended hiatus to begin a new series of Practicing History podcasts. It's been a while since I've been in the studio, but in the meantime, I've collected lots of ideas and look forward to many weeks and months of new episodes. Before we get started, though, I want to encourage you to subscribe to Practicing History on iTunes. And if you don't mind, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate us there as well. And while you're on iTunes, you can head over to my colleague Joe Kuhill's podcast, Professor Buzzkill, which looks at all kinds of historical myths and compares them to historical evidence. Recent shows look at medieval torture devices, Hitler, Jesse Owens, and the 1936 Berlin Olympics, and Amelia Earhart. All right, well, let's get started on episode five. What is a primary document? In just a few weeks, we start the fall semester at my university. It's my job to teach our senior research seminar. I love this course because it's the culmination of, a deg- of the degree for history majors. I'll have about 18 people, all pursuing their own research projects. It will more than likely be the most intensive research and writing course that they've taken as an undergraduate. Now, despite the fact that most of them have been in history courses for four years, I still think it's important to review the fundamentals with them. And in a history course, there are few things more fundamental than primary sources. From their first days in the classroom, history majors are reminded of the importance of primary sources to the practice of history. They're the building blocks of historical knowledge, the pieces that we put together to create narratives, form interpretations, and make arguments. More often than not, The explanation of what constitutes a primary document is accompanied by a discussion of secondary documents. In this episode, I'm going to briefly define secondary sources, but a longer discussion will have to wait for another episode. So, what is a primary source? I get this question a lot from students, and it's usually accompanied by something like, is it a letter? Does a newspaper article count? How about a photo? And my answer is almost always, well, it depends. This is because a primary document is not defined by something essential to the object itself. It's it's not the form of an object. Rather, what makes something a primary document is its relationship to the historian. How is the historian using the document? That's what makes something primary or secondary. The form doesn't matter. A primary source might be a letter. Uh, It could be a newspaper article. It could also be a painting or a piece of music or a quilt or even a building. The list is endless. The historian creates a primary source by using it as a bit of evidence to elucidate a historical moment. And that's why you sometimes hear a historian say that a primary source is a document from the time under analysis. And that a secondary source, on the other hand, is an object that synthesizes primary documents. It synthesizes this 
historical knowledge. And so a secondary object is something that's usually some combination of primary and other secondary source materials. Now again, I want to emphasize that these definitions are about function and not about form. They're about how the historian engages with the object, not about the form of the ob that the object takes. So to provide some clarification, let me provide an example. Let's say that we decide to sit down and read E.P. Thompson's classic, The Making of the English Working Class, which, if you haven't done it yet, I highly recommend it. So let's say that I decide to read the book for its interpretation of early industrial life. In this case, the way I'm reading it makes E.P. Thompson's book a secondary document. That's because what I'm trying to get at is his interpretation of the primary and secondary source material that he read. He's telling me a broad interpretation of a period. But if I want to read the book as an artifact of the new left in Britain during the 1960s, then it's a primary document. So the document itself, the book, The Making of the English Working Class, tells me something about the political and cultural atmosphere of 1960s Britain. Things get a lot more complicated than that. You know, a, a single object can be both a primary and a secondary source. But what happens if we think about the primary source in the digital environment? So let's say we have one of my favorite digitized environments, which is the Old Bailey Papers online, which is the source material of the old uh, Bailey in London. Now, there's the original documents that sit in an archive, and the folks who compiled the old Bailey project have digitized those sources. So they're a copy. These copies, these scanned copies, have then been transcribed. So somebody has sat down and uh, either typed out the text or used a computer program to interpret the text and uh, put it into a text file. So we have the original picture of the document, and we have the text from the document that's in a machine-readable form, the transcription. But on top of that, we have coding that goes into creating this web-based platform. So there's markup and metadata embodied in the transcription itself. So what we have now are multiple layers. We have the original object, we have the scan of the original object, we have the transcription of the original, uh, of the scan itself, we have the markup and the metadata that's been then added on top of the transcribed and scanned objects. So depending on how we decide to analyze each of these different levels, they could be perhaps primary or secondary documents. So you might want to ask, why should I even care about primary sources? Isn't this just something that uh, professors are concerned about? Well, I would say that we should care because these are the things that are at the core of historical interpretation. 
And that historical interpretation has consequences. It has consequences for how we understand the world, how we justify our actions, how we construct our political systems. On the one hand, primary documents provide some basic bits of historical evidence. So if I ask, what does the U.S. Constitution say about freedom of thought and expression? Well, I have a piece of evidence that I can turn to to get that information. It's basic, factual information. Uh, it's the, I can go to the Bill of Rights, and the Bill of Rights states the following. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. On the other hand, when looking at a primary document, we aren't always just concerned with the basic information, the who, the what, the where, or the when. We're concerned with the why. We're interested in meaning and context. We want to extract information about cultural significance, intent, perception, and reception. We're interested in complex ideas that can't be reduced to a who, or a what, or a when, or a where. Take the Second Amendment, for example. It states, A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, what does this mean? Our historical interpretation of this primary document has significant consequences that we're all aware of. What questions might we ask about this primary document? These might include, what did it mean to the people who drafted the amendment? Why was it drafted? What problems did it seek to solve? How has the amendment been interpreted over time? How have changing sociocultural and political contexts transformed its meaning? Any question beyond the what, when, where, and who are questions of interpretation. These sorts of questions suggest that reading primary sources is always accompanied by interpretation. And this is because, to get back to my original point, how the historian reads the document is what makes them primary. And all of us, when we read something for its historical content and context, we bring our epistemologies, our assumptions, our biases, and methodologies with us. And these shape our interpretations of the primary documents. I want to conclude with a little bit of reflection. Those of you who have listened to my earlier podcast episodes have probably gathered that I'm a bit skeptical about claims of absolute objectivity in historical research. And this doesn't mean that I'm a relativist about historical interpretation. In fact, it's far from it. However, I think that intellectual honesty requires us to embrace our limitations and biases, and in fact, to openly engage with and ponder them. 
In studying primary documents, I think that this is particularly important to historical practice. Because even our primary sources are not neutral. We're limited to the sources that survive, to those to which we have access. And perhaps unsurprisingly, these survivals tend to represent the lives of the rich and the powerful. The sources that might have helped us build the narratives of the majority of humanity are gone, or maybe they were never created. The historical record itself is, to a great extent, biased. From this record, we have to choose our sources. And the sources we choose not to engage with shape our narratives and interpretations every bit as much as those we decide to study. And this is why I think knowing what primary sources are and thinking about the ways that they shape historical interpretation is so important. That's it for this episode of Practicing History. For supplementary materials, please visit my website at jasonmkelly.com. You can find me on Twitter at jason underscore m underscore kelly. Feel free to leave me a message or suggest topics for future episodes. Thanks for listening.